Hello, friends. Just two quick notes before I start this episode. One, please remember that I am not a professional, and for some reason, my audio got really wonky. You can still hear it. It's still good. There are some background noises. I don't know what those sounds are. I am not professional enough, experienced enough, or probably have the right equipment to remove those sounds. Just deal with it. Number two, I still have no idea how to introduce these interview episodes, uh, so just here it is. All right, so why don't we just crack into it, and you can go ahead and introduce yourself for everybody. Okay, well, my name's David Carter, and I am a writer. I have five books out at present, and they cover kind of a, a weird, wide range of subjects. Uh, but if I, I concentrate on writing fiction, it, it, it's hard to describe uh, just because a lot of what I do, I would never want to describe it as inspirational or anything like that. It does use religious sort of conflicts and situations as a, as a way of just exploring the overall human condition. So uh, religion is kind of thematically big, but it's not like I have any interest in using my work to change or instill beliefs in anyone. I did read The Rat Reverend Clancy. Oh, did you? I did. I was like, I might as, you know, might as well read a book if I'm going to interview him. And that was the newest one that you put out. Yeah. 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 That came out sometime, I think, in August. I did like the book, but I'm not going to lie. I'm not an overtly religious person. So mm -hmm. I think some of it was probably lost on me, to be quite yes. honest. It was very cute. It did make me think about a lot of things, actually. <laughs> well, I, I think that's kind of my object. You know, um, I most of what passes as religious fiction is really just propaganda. And I don't want to tell people what to think. You know, I just I want to present situations that make them kind of wonder. Yeah. And it it's a story, not not propaganda at all, which I did appreciate because like me, they're yeah. Uh, you know, a lot of people who aren't overly religious, but still want to read books like this and mm -hmm. don't want to hear too much preachy bits, if that makes sense. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think I'm like that myself. You know, I have I have a background in religion in the sense that I was a religious studies major in college and went on to do graduate work, um, which involved getting involved in ministry in a sense, but, you know, where I worked at soup kitchens, worked in a hospital, worked with the homeless, that kind of thing. But again, it was not with the object of, of preaching to them or, or, or being a minister in any sense. But what it did was it really made me get fascinated and not in any sort of critical way, but I, I started to look at the people I was working with and saw that, you know, these people feel called to do this kind of work. They feel a, a pull to be a religious functionary, a religious lead, and, and not having that sort of desire in myself, it, it just fascinated me. So I think the book comes out somewhat of that kind of exploring the kind of psychology that would feel a need to get up and preach. 
Right. Which, you know, I always question where it's like, what, what made you just decide that this was a thing you were going to do with your life? And it definitely is very reflected in that just with the little Clancy, who's just a cute character. <laughs> I've had some feedback that he's almost uh, kind of annoying <laughs> just because he is so kind of gung ho. He has this sort of missionary zeal which can get under people's skin. And I've definitely come across people who are just really overbearing in that sense. But I think he's just, he's just excited. That's what I got from it. Like he's like that friend that gets really loud and really overly excited about this really cool thing that they just discovered. And they want to (laughs) tell you all about it. Yeah. So what made you, what inspired you to write Instead of, I mean, did you follow through with the, I'm sorry, I'm not sure the technical terms, the, the graduate ministry, work, and, the graduate work. Yeah. No, I really didn't because I was very clear before I went to do my graduate work. And even as a religious studies major, I was real clear that, no, you know, I don't, I don't want to be a priest or anything like that. I just, I don't have any desire for that. I have nothing against it. I just, I knew it wasn't for me. And what I thought was, okay, uh, of course I want to write. I always want to write fiction. I would like to be a scholar in a certain sense too. I didn't want to do creative writing graduate work just because I was too shy at the time, because that involves those MFA programs. They involve, you know, you're getting together with your class and you're workshopping your stuff. And I never liked to do that until I feel like I've got something really finished and polished. So that wouldn't have worked for me. But I had done really well in my religion and religious history classes. So I thought, well, I'll go on it. I'll, I'll continue with this. But I found out really quick in graduate school that if you have any prayer of going on to being a professor and getting tenure, you have to have like at least four or five languages under your belt. You have to have German. You have to have French, depending on the religion you're studying. You have to have Hebrew or Greek or Latin, or if you're studying Buddhism, you know, you have to have Asian languages, uh, Islam, you have to have Arabic. So, I mean, just depending on where you're going, you still have to have a lot of languages. And I was just not that good at it. I figured it out. I could, I did okay with Greek. I can still read it a little bit, but Hebrew was just, I couldn't get anywhere with it. And so I really had to get realistic about what I was going to do. So I did some of the social work and, and then went back to uh, school to get a master's degree in English. And that's when I started teaching and I teach on the community college level. Oh, cool. Yeah. I didn't know you taught as well. Yeah. Other than the human condition, what else inspires you to write? I, it's something that really I've always done since, you know, childhood, really. Just kind of if I was in a, you know, a math class or some other class I didn't like, you know, I had my little notebook open and I was doing little sketches and stories and things like that. So it was just a way for me to express myself. And there, there's a very famous writer Uh, She died not too long ago, a British writer named Doris Lessing. And she said something once that always stuck with me. She was being interviewed and she said, well, for me, it's kind of, uh, it's like a psychological balancing mechanism. If I didn't do it, I would probably 
be an alcoholic or something or go insane. It's just something I have to, it helps me blow off steam. And I think that's kind of the case for me. That um, makes sense. Other things, you know, it's not just religion. I have, I live in North Carolina and there's a lot of very quirky sort of out of the way places in this state that have, for example, there's a, the Outer Banks. I don't know if you've heard of, of that. It's a set of islands off the coast that are really far off into the Atlantic Ocean. And for centuries, they were pretty isolated. And so the people who live there, their families tend to have lived there for a lot of generations. And to be honest, there there had to be, it's a very closed community. They have their own dialect that's very hard for other people to understand. Um, and so I have a lot of friends from that area. So I'm really fascinated with that culture down there. So I've written about that in a book called From the Edge of the World and another book called The Dead Man, which kind of is, is set in those places. Wild. That was another one that I wanted to pick up, The Dead Man, uh, just because the, the title intrigued me. <laughs> Well, it's it was my attempt at uh, a ghost story or a horror story. I like to read a lot of that kind of stuff, Stephen King and Shirley Jackson, stuff like that. And so The Dead Man is about a little nine-year-old boy who gets a hold of a Ouija board and gets into trouble with it. Ooh, yeah, Ouija boards. That's some scary stuff. Yeah. Okay, so why did you pick animals for uh, subject matter? You know, I... Characters. I really don't know. There's a couple of, of ways that I've thought about that. But, you know, one thing with, well, I'll say this. When I was little, there were a lot of really good books out there that had animal protagonists. Uh, the obvious, the first one that comes to mind, Charlotte's Web. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you've heard of that. Um, yeah. There was a writer. He's not that well-known these days, but he was popular when I was a little kid, and his name was Robert Lawson. And he wrote a couple of books, and I think Disney made movies of one of them, but there was a book called Ben and Me, and it was about a little mouse who lived in Ben Franklin's fur hat. And actually, he was the, you know, Ben Franklin discovered electricity and did this and that and helped write the Declaration of Independence. Well, in this book, the little mouse is the one who really gets the credit for all that. Oh. Ben Franklin was just kind of a numbskull and got all of his ideas from this little pet mouse. So that's cute. Uh, yeah, it was. It's a great idea. So I, th- I think those kind of ideas just kind of stuck with me. Also, I've always had dogs. Uh, I've never had cats, uh, just because, and not because I don't like them. I have a nice cat in the latest book, mm-hmm. but. Um, I've always had birds and always had rats, and so they kind of don't mix. Right. Never had birds. I did have rats for a while and mice. Rats um, are just incredibly smart pets. And I had a dove. Um, those are great pets to have, too. And she lived a long time. 15 really? years I had that bird. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I didn't know they lived that long. Well, yeah. at least some of them do. Wow. So let's let's kind of get a little bit deeper into this book specifically because well, okay. I read it and I'm fascinated. Are any of the characters in the book based off of people that you have met or situations you've been in or anything like that? Um, 
If they are, it, at least it's very rare. In The Dead Man, for example, there's an adult character who really reminds me of uh, a relative of mine. But I, when I wrote it, I really wasn't conscious of it. Mm-hmm. So if it's there, I'm not conscious of it. Clancy, in a way, just, you know, he reminds me of all those people I've known, particularly religious people who are basically good-hearted and outgoing and just, you know, get in over their heads a little bit. I don't know if you remember Tammy Baker. They just, Netflix, I think, is doing a documentary about, it was a kind of evangelist couple who got into trouble in the 1980s. They were involved with some scandals. And Tammy was like the wife of the of the minister. And she was kind of... Uh, became a famous cultural figure just because she was so, she just had this effervescent personality and she wore tons of makeup and she was just very recognizable. And she was unusual for that time and that she, you know, she was a televangelist and a very conservative Christian, but this was a kind of at the very beginning of the AIDS epidemic. And she was very very outspoken about not judging people and ministering to people. So she's been very, um, yeah, I'm not overly familiar with that. So she's well loved in the gay community. She died a few years back, but she's kind of uh, an icon. Since I don't know much about religion in general, the, uh, the seven sacraments, uh-huh. uh, let's, can we talk about that a little bit? Sure. Like, what are they? Are they seven sacraments? Are they specific to a kind of religion or are they specific to all religions? And what's what's the importance of them and why did you put them in the book? They really are specific to, in a broad way, Christianity, but not all of the Christian groups agree about the number of sacraments and what they are. It The seven sacraments are kind of more closely related to the Roman Catholic Church. Okay. And so I I kind of, and really uh, the book, I just kind of had a, an idea. It would be kind of interesting to arrange a story around the seven sacraments. And so that's how it all came together. And so I, that's how I kind of arranged the the chapters and every chapter sort of roughly corresponds to an issue around one of the particular sacraments, whether it's baptism, uh, communion, marriage, ordination to the priesthood, and you can kind of go throughout. Because, you know, as I'm reading it, I'm like, I I was understanding that these were kind of basic things that you learn about in religion, like very sort of the, what am I looking for? Kind of like the, the guidebook for just basic things that you should know regarding yeah. religion. Yeah, the, the official word for that is catechism. Oh, okay. Um, hmm. So what was your target audience for that book? I really don't. I, I would hate to limit it at all. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, when I did some readings here in my hometown and bookstores and stuff like that, and there were some questions about, well, you know, it kind of looks like and sounds like a children's book. Mm-hmm. But it isn't really, I mean, children aren't going to have this kind of theological sort of interest or, right. or they're not going to grasp some of the concepts. So it's not really, a, maybe in terms of the form, 
you know, it has this kind mm-hmm. of simple structure of chapters around these, you know, certain sacraments. So maybe a kind of the form is like a children's book, but the content is more for, for adults and particularly not religious adults, but for, you know, for adults who like to ponder these sorts of, I guess, major life issues or metaphysical questions. Oh, okay. Because it is writing wise and character wise. I was like, this does seem, you know, like a, like a YA book, like a young adults book. But at the same time, I was like, this has some pretty heavy themes in so much as grasping the concept. And I'm sure if, you know, you have somebody kind of reading it with you and explaining it to you a little bit, then that would help as far as age-wise goes. Yeah, that makes sense. It's kind of a hybrid. Mm-hmm. Do any of the animals represent anything specific, or is it just a kind of a motley crew of animals that came together because they were sort of fascinated as well about this little rat reverend doing his thing? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, and I, I, the simple answer is no. No one really represents anything allegorically the way you might think you know a rat is kind of a considered to be unless you've had them as pets kind of a nasty animal that you don't want to have around so obviously that's not the case maybe with the buzzard uh the vulture characters i was playing around with you know normally we're just kind of revolted by these creatures because Mm -hmm. but i i wanted to give this one kind of a nice sort of personality. So there's a little bit of that, but, and maybe I'm playing around with the the kind of natural fear and enmity between rats and cats that had to be dealt with in this story. Mm -hmm. So there's that, but, but yeah, I don't think there's any kind of symbolism that I was intending. I was specifically wondering about the rat that sort of showed up, uh, saved Clancy and then, just kind of disappeared a little bit. Yeah. I was wondering if he was had a metaphor behind him or anything like that. Well, I I really wanted to leave that ambiguous. You know, Clancy's mm-hmm. friend Hertz, the worm, didn't see anything, even though mm-hmm. he was watching the whole thing. So, you know, was what was going on with that? Was Clancy seeing who who knows? Who knows what was really happening with that? And I, I did want to kind of leave that ambiguous. So I guess yeah. I'm, I'm not sure myself. <laughs> I definitely did have a discussion with my mom kind of back and forth a little bit about that in particular. And we were kind of bringing up the, is it one of those kindness of strangers kind of thing where you don't necessarily have to believe the same things to be kind to someone when you see them in trouble or was it him not realizing that he had this strength in him to save himself kind of thing? I liked it. I thought that part was good. I had to sit down and think about it for a minute, but I did like that. Yeah, I like the way you articulated both those uh, possibilities, because that's really the kind of, that's those are the questions and the kind of possibilities that, that I was sort of toying around with. Because at first I was like, where did where did this where did he go? What what happened here? And then the more I thought about it, I was like, what do you think? And I asked my mom and we discussed it and kind of came to this interesting conclusion that like 
this guy could cover a range of things or or not. Yeah, that's a great analysis, I think. Regarding your other books, now, granted, I didn't read those, so I'm not so much aware of what they have going on with them. Do you want to kind of give a little synopsis of them? Sure. I'll, um, I guess going back from, from this one, I spoke a little bit about The Dead Man, uh, which takes place in a little isolated community in the Outer Banks of North Carolina. And then the book before that is called From the Edge of the World, which is taking place in that same community. I guess it's one of my more traditional sort of novels. It's kind of like the older brother of the little boy and the dead man. His name is Victor, and he's kind of a, a delinquent who's sent to this little community where he has relatives to kind of work in a seafood restaurant and get his, himself into shape sort out some of his problems because his mother can no longer really handle him. So it's a story, uh, just kind of a basic sort of coming to of age story and reconnecting with a part of your heritage that, uh, that you weren't really aware of. Book before that was kind of a prequel to uh, the Rat Reverend Clancy. It has some of the same characters. It's called Lustration Rites, and it takes place in that same church, uh, but it's more from the perspective of the human priest, the Reverend de Bassompierre, and he becomes convinced because of strange things happening in the church that the church has become haunted or possessed by the devil. And what's really happening is, you know, Clancy is making a lot of this stuff happen. <laughs> so there's that. And then the book before that was my first published book, and it's called Familiar. And that is the story of, it takes place on a farm in a community in North Carolina. There's a young woman who goes to stay on the farm with some relatives, and she's vegan. It's very important to her. She's become a vegan, and she, um, is, she likes to you know go around the farm and sort of check out all the animals. And she gets attached to a little baby chicken that um, is kind of a runt and the chicken is not being taken care of. So, so she kind of adopts the chicken and takes it inside and she reads to it and doesn't really think much of it. It's just a pet to her. But then because she reads to it, it develops the ability to read and write and starts to communicate with her, falls in love with her. And of course that doesn't work out. So we kind of uh, sublimates that and decides that he wants to become a Roman Catholic. So he tries to join a Roman Catholic church and they figure out that, you know, this has never come up before. An animal wants to join the church. What are we going to do? So he has to eventually go to the Vatican and meet the Pope and see if the Pope will allow him to be baptized and be a member of the Catholic church. And I'll just kind of leave it at that. And All right. say too much about what happens. That sounds fascinating. It really does. I oh. like how you've you've put that personification of of an animal in there and having to deal with people. Yeah, I liked that. Um, I like that idea. And again, it kind of goes back to the kind of stuff I read as a kid. Uh, but mm -hmm. again, with this sort of peculiar religious element in it. Oh, getting books published. Yeah. Um, did you? You didn't self-publish. Did you? I didn't think you did. No, I thought about that. Um, 
for years, it was really difficult to get anything published. I think it's, it's great that people self-publish now and so many good things have come out of that, but it just, it, it wouldn't work for me just because I'm, until I have something that I feel like is almost completely finished and polished, I don't show it to anyone, not even, you know, my loved ones. No one gets to see anything until I think it's pretty much, you know, full term. Mm-hmm. And so I really need um, that editorial feedback that comes once you've submitted something to a publisher. Um, so I was glad to finally find some publishers that were able to provide that. So that's why, you know, it took me a long time to get anything uh, published. I'm glad I waited because it, I just feel like I have, I, I was able to do better. Makes sense. Yeah, I hear that trying to get them published through a publishing house can take a while and is a long, can be a long drawn out process. These days, I think it is a bit easier just because the internet and technology has developed so that there are a lot of, a lot more small presses that are willing to look at stuff. Whereas, you know, 10, 20, years ago, there were really just a handful of these big publishing houses that were just swamped with everyone's work. And they, you know, it was very difficult to break through. That makes sense. I spent quite some time researching, getting uh, permissions to read publications and things like that. All of these books go back to like the same major three uh, publishing houses, regardless of what company they were under. I mean, yeah. They're older. They're not they're not necessarily like, you know, new, new, but within like 10 years. So I was like, wow, yeah. this is insane. Yeah. The past few years have really opened things up and just in terms of options. If you're if you're happy publishing with a small press, which I definitely am. When your books, I'll just say, fall into the hands of non-religious people, how do they receive them? Have you talked to anybody about it? If it makes them think about these things more, less, if they dislike the books? Yeah, well, it's interesting. I live in North Carolina, which is kind of the Bible Belt. And a lot of my closest friends, you know, tend to be people who who grew up in very conservative sort of religious environments and and feel alienated from that it just wasn't a good experience from them so i i I know a lot of people who are kind of turned off by religion but i think because they experience my books as not necessarily glamorizing religion or, or, or being preachy that they they respond pretty well to it and i have one good friend who reads um all of my stuff and he's basically you know an agnostic and he says reading particularly the first few books familiar and that sort of thing in some ways you're very critical of the catholic church in some ways you know these characters are relatable and human and likable even though they're very religious and he said you know i i don't know what to make of it i don't know what you believe and I said, well, that's very good. That's how I want people to experience these as being open. Yeah. Um, hanging out in the in the alphabet soup mafia, um, the LGBTQIA uh-huh. plus community, I do know a lot of people that have not had the greatest experiences yeah. with religion and churches and all of that. But I think 
I think a few of them would probably enjoy these books regardless of it being in there because they're good. Well, I'm glad to hear that. I, you know, I, I do try to address the problems that go along with most institutional religions. You know, the graduate seminary I went to uh, was a, an Episcopal seminary in Boston, and, and that was a very, very progressive environment, which was, you know, one of the first denominations to ordain women and ordain openly gay clergy and, and that sort of thing. So, you know, not all established churches are all that conservative, but, you know, certainly there's, there's issues in the Catholic church still. And I wanted to address that with familiar. And in fact, uh, the, the farm uh, where the chicken kind of grows up and comes to, to learn to read and write is owned by a lesbian couple. So that's actually really awesome. I definitely wanted to have the community represented there. And there's actually quite a bit of, you know, uh, rural areas in really all over the South where there are communities of tolerance. Mm-hmm. They're just not not enough. Okay, so you were saying you like to make sure that your books are kind of pretty polished before you let people mm-hmm. uh, read them. Do you have a specific writing process that you do? You know, a specific place that you sit down and just write, or yeah, um, I think everyone does tend to develop uh, a routine and a discipline in order to get things done. I try not to be too rigid about it. For me, what works best is to get up really early in the morning, as painful as it is for me. I'm not naturally an early riser. But once I am up and have some coffee in me, I really like having that, you know, before and during sunrise time where the world is really quiet and I can concentrate before going about the business of the day. So, and then depending on what the rest of the day looks like, if I have free time later on in the day, I'll go back to the work I'd done in the morning and kind of work with that a little bit. So yeah, that's basically my process. I really have to go through several times to to get it into the kind of shape that I like until I you know, when I'm trying to get something drafted and just get the basic writing out, I don't worry too much about how good it is or the style or anything like that. I just kind of get it out there and then worry about making it more readable later. What elements do you think make a good story? Do you think that there has to be some, I mean, obviously beginning, middle, and end, but do you think there has to be some really specific pivotal points? It's a good question. I, you know, I think there's all sorts of room for experimentation in terms of the form and how you want to navigate or manipulate beginning, middle, and end, and that sort of thing. I think basically, there's only one golden rule that you have to follow. And that is you have to have conflict. Otherwise, the story is not going to be interesting. It may turn out to be just sentimentality unless there's real relatable conflict that has to be faced. I'd say that if you have a problem, then you have a story. Okay. The very last most important question. Oh, boy. Do you think, yes, yes, most important question. 
do you think animals go to heaven? That's such a great question. And you know, there have been, believe it or not, tons of books written on this very question. It's something that, you know, people throughout the history of religion, I guess, have struggled with. And I don't know, you know, it's impossible to know what right, goes right. on in an animal's head until the animals either develop the ability or want to communicate with us. Who knows? Mm -hmm. But I mean, if you've ever loved an animal, that animal, it's hard to, to say they don't have a soul because they, you know, they're so distinctive. Right. I mean, I can remember just, for example, with the rats that I've had, you know, I can walk in the room and they they just have such different personalities and they dream. I don't know if you've ever seen a rat when he's asleep, just kind of chasing something and twitching around. They're having oh, like, dreams. Like dogs, they twitch in their sleep. Yeah. It's yeah. so cute. Yeah, it really is. So, you know, if you have dreams, then you have a subconscious. If you have a subconscious, then you have a conscious. You know, it's just... Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot, it's an interesting question, but my gut instinct is that, you know, of course, of course, animals have souls. I I would like to think that, that they do. I mean, yeah. you know, your pet that, that you love forever. How could you not imagine them exactly. going somewhere great like that? And whatever heaven is or means, then I, there are lots of animals I want to see there. <laughs> would you like to kind of plug yourself tell uh, listeners where they can find you so i do have a website everything's on amazon um and also um here's what i say i like to support local bookstores mm -hmm. independent bookstores if you have access to an independent bookstore in your town it will help me but more than that, it will help them. If you go into the bookstore and say, I am interested in this book by this author with this title, that's really all they need. And what they do is they order from a service called Ingram, which provides books to any independent bookseller. And so that's how um, you can supplement their inventory and, and it just helps out the, the local businesses. So there's that. There's also Amazon. And you can also navigate to the publisher's uh, website mm -hmm. and order from them. I have three different publishers that I've published with. And they're all connected to my website, too. Oh, okay. Cool. Well, I think that's, that's really it. Uh, thank you so much for joining me and letting me interview you and having this great conversation. Yeah, it's a, I really appreciate you having me and it's just it's been a lot of fun. Really good questions. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. For more information on David Carter, you can find him at davidlcarter.wixsite.com backslash my site. You can also find the link in the show notes.